Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we're going to do a deep dive on the only team in the top three in either conference that we haven't yet covered, the Washington Wizards. So I'm here with Charles Maniego. And Charles, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good, Nick. How are you? Doing all right. Let's jump right in and start with a review of their offseason. And in my opinion, the Wizards' biggest acquisition this offseason was not a player, but actually their new coach, Scotty Brooks. A lot of people were critical of Brooks because of the way the Thunder offense ran, particularly during the playoffs. And there was a lot of talk about how his success there was in large part just due to his players and not due to any real coaching brilliance on his part. But what Scotty Brooks has been really good at throughout his coaching career, and that has showed itself this season, is his player development and just how players, particularly players that have the ball in their hands a lot, do so much better with him as the coach and you can see it through the leap that John Wall has made you can see it through the leap Bradley Beal has made and maybe some of this improvement is just due to the fact that Brooks is a much better coach than Randy Whitman who he's replacing but I've been really impressed with the job that Brooks has done this season as the coach of the Wizards what are your thoughts on how Scott Brooks has changed this team yeah I definitely agree with you he definitely caught a lot of flack in Oklahoma City just because he had Westbrook and Durant at the end of that run they're just taking turns with the basketball. But I think his real big asset is just being able to manage talent. And I think just recently seeing the Wizards play, they kind of have an identity now. Last season with Randy Whitman, they were 20th in offensive rating. This year, they're 8th in offensive rating. Now they're running a lot more pick and roll. So they're just like a spread pick and roll team with a little bit of off-ball movement. And having John Wall that Scotty Brooks has really pushed him to be an elite point guard, which we'll probably talk about later. Like, He's really pushed Wall to lead the charge and be like that elite floor general. So the Wizards are fifth in the NBA in fast break points. And that's definitely something that Scotty Brooks has installed in the offense this year. And that goes along with the improvement of Beal, Porter, and even like Markeith Morris too. So at the time of this podcast, the Wizards are 46 and 29. That's already five more wins than they had last year. They've won the division title for the first time in 38 years. And they did have a couple of other free agent acquisitions who we'll get to in a minute. But Brooks is pretty clearly the biggest change between last year's team and this year's team. And you know, even though they had that rough start, which we will get into in more depth later, the fact that they've managed to roar back to now the third seed in the East is pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. I think that that rough start was kindly just due to Brooks adjusting to the team and the team adjusting to Brooks. And like going forward, I think Brooks should be a coach for them like for the long-term future. Like Their current record, like you were saying, 46 and 29, that's already the high watermark for the Randy Whitman era of the Wizards. So it's definitely an improvement and a sign of things to come. So moving on to their biggest player free agent acquisition in Jan Mahimi, the Wizards already had a starting center in Marcin Gortat coming into the year, and he turned 33 this season. Maybe there were thoughts that he would regress due to age. He hasn't really, which we'll get into later, but Mahimi has been out for almost the entire season. He's come back recently, and he's been pretty effective at what he does best. He's allowing 53.2% shooting from six feet or less away from the basket, and he's been pretty accurate. He doesn't take many shots, but he's got a 59% true shooting. He's 
decently good at the run to the rim, catch lobs, dunk the ball kind of thing. But he started off slow when he came back from injury, and he's only played in 25 games so far this year. And I think the issue with Mahimi is that there's only so much that he can contribute to this team with Gortat on the roster, because unless Gortat falls off a cliff next year, then you're paying Yamahimi three more years, $60 million a year to basically be a backup. So I'm a little out on Mahimi, even though he has been pretty effective when he has played this season. But what are your thoughts on both how Mahimi has played and how that contract might affect the Wizards going forward? I just think overall that Wizards offseason was pretty weird. They signed a lot of big men in Jason Smith, Andrew Nicholson, who was traded, and Jan Mahimi. And they're all signed to like three to four year contracts, which is a little puzzling considering that they already have Gortat. And all of those guys are around the same age as Gortat as well. They're around late 20s, early 30s. But for Mahimi, like he's been pretty effective recently. He didn't score that much against the Lakers, but he's really effective defensively. But like you were saying, him and Gortat definitely won't work together on the court together. And Gortat also has a couple of years left on his contract. So it's really interesting to see like if they can get out of that contract or if they can actually find a suitor for Mahimi. I don't really see him as a piece going forward for the Wizards, especially with the knee problems. Like you were saying, he only played one game from November to February, and then he he's only really come on post-All-Star break, too. So I want to save talking about Jason Smith for when we get into the big man rotation. So let's just talk quickly about the two backup point guard acquisitions they made in the offseason. They got Trey Burke, and they also brought Tomas Sanorowski over from Europe. And Burke has been one of the worst rotation players in basketball this year. His true shooting percentage is 51%, which is, you know, far below average. He's got a negative 8.9 net rating with him on the court for the Wizards, and the Wizards are plus 4.5 with him off the court. In terms of Sadoransky, he's somehow actually been a worse shooter. He's only got a 48% true shooting percentage, but his on-off court stats are a lot better, and I think the big reason for that is Burke is... 6-1 on a good day, and Sadoransky is a legit 6-7. So just purely by the virtue of their size, Sadoransky is a much better defender than Burke is. But I just really don't see any reason, especially after the acquisition of Brandon Jennings, but honestly, even beforehand, I don't see any reason why the Wizards would continue to put Burke out on the court when he just doesn't do anything really that they need. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the reason why John Wall is one of the top five players in minutes this year is because Burke hasn't really shown anything. I think they were looking to take a flyer on him when they acquired him from the Jazz in the offseason, but he's really hasn't shown that much like he isn't super fast and like you were saying his size is really a detriment to him his arms are kind of too short to shoot over other defending point guards and he hasn't really led as a floor general off the bench as well and that's really unfortunate because the wizards have brought on a lot of shooting so not having someone to set them up is kind of detrimental to them i think that's been the most surprising thing to me about burke's career so far he was a really fantastic creator at michigan in addition to being a top-notch scorer and it makes sense to me that he hasn't been as effective at scoring in the nba just because there are bigger and more athletic guys guarding him every night than there were in the college game 
but I'm just surprised how ineffective Burke has been at creating for others, since that's something that he seemed to be pretty good at on the college level. As for Sadoransky, he's basically fallen out of the rotation, although he's actually averaged slightly more minutes per game than Burke has this season. The problem with Sadoransky is he just can't shoot. He's shooting 25.8% from three, 41.7% from the floor, and he's a better creator than Burke. But at the end of the day, the Wizards have no need to play that level of shooting liability at point guard when Brandon Jennings has been a better creating shooting liability since they got him from the Knicks. Yeah, for sure. I do see Sadoransky having a decent career in the NBA. He's obviously 6'7". He's really long. And just seeing him as a 6'7 point guard, he could play a point forward with Jennings or another bench piece and feel like he's still getting into the game. Even looking at Otto Porter, like he improved his shooting over the course of his career. And we could see that with Sadoransky, even though he's a little bit older for a rookie. He's 25 right now. So let's move on from the offseason overview into looking at their season as a whole. And I wanted to start with the big man rotation. We talked about Jan Mahimi a little bit before, but in terms of him working his way into the rotation... In his first 10 games, he played more than 20 minutes only once, and he played 21 minutes. And then in the last 15 games, he's played 20 or more minutes nine times. So I think Mihimi can probably reach around seventh man in their rotation, just because Boyan Bogdanovich has been on fire for them. But working Mahimi into their rotation, I think, will be really important because at the end of the day, he's the only real rim protector that this team has. Gortat is decent at that, but he's just not the same kind of athlete that Mahimi is when he's healthy. And if they can get Mahimi to just be a defense first, second, and third big man in the playoffs, I think that could really help them. Yeah, that's been his calling card throughout his career. He's just a big body down low. And that's kind of why the Wizards really put a lot of money into him. Um, I'm really hoping that for going forward and into the playoffs, like you were mentioning, that Mahimi can really show his room protection, just get into a rhythm. Like you mentioned with his minutes, he's starting to ramp up his minutes. And I think he should be able to use these last few games in the regular season just to really get a rhythm and get into the flow of the offense with the rest of the players and the defense as well, too. One of the funniest stories that I think I've seen this season is how Markeith Morris responded to, I believe it was a Bleacher Report article about how he wasn't among the league's top 30 power forwards. And I want to credit the source here. Candace Buckner of the Washington Post said that this was on January 28th. The title of the article is Markeith Morris hates clickbait so much that he's taking it out on Wizards opponents. And looking at his splits, so the article came out middle of January And in November and December, he was averaging about 13.6 rebounds per game. And then January, he averaged 17.8 points, 8.6 rebounds per game. February, he averaged 17 points again, 6.8 rebounds per game. He's had a tough March, but I just thought it was incredible and hilarious that Markeith Morris basically stepped up his play drastically after some article about how he wasn't a top 30 power forward in the NBA, which is kind of absurd given that he's, you know, starting on a playoff team. But what are your thoughts on Morris so far this year? 
Yeah, so that article actually had David Lee ranked above Markeith Morris. Morris wasn't even on the list. But I think you were mentioning it, that Morris has had a tough march. I was looking at the splits before January 28th and after. So after January 28th, Morris has averaged 13 points and 6 rebounds, which is right on line with his 13.9 points and 6.5 rebounds per game on the season overall. I mean, it was interesting to see that his drastic improvement in January and February coincided with the Wizards really going on a hot streak. But I'm kind of worried how he'll do for the rest of the season into the playoffs because he's definitely not as strong a rebounder and he might be a little too undersized to defend bigger guys like Serge Ibaka and Tristan Thompson in the playoffs, even Amir Johnson. On the plus side for Morris, though, he's basically shooting career best numbers from three-point range. I say basically because his rookie year, he shot 34.7% from deep, and this year he's shooting 34.6% from deep. So really not that much of a difference. But part of that also plays into just how effective John Wall is at creating three-point shots for the other players on the floor with him. Anyway, let's move on to talking about Jason Smith. And we talked about how Markeith Morris has had somewhat of a rough march But Jason Smith has been so much better since the All-Star break. Just looking quickly at his splits before and after. So before the All-Star break, he was decently efficient. True shooting percentage, 57.4%. You know, around average for a big man, but he's not exactly a traditional big man. Since the All-Star break, he's shooting 64.3% true shooting. He's gone from five points a game to eight points a game. He's gone from three rebounds a game to four rebounds a game. He's playing slightly more minutes. The Wizards were minus 5.7 with him on the floor before the All-Star break and plus 10.1 with him after the All-Star break. And that's honestly been really strange. I think we both watched their game against the Clippers the other day, and Jason Smith just keeps shooting threes. He was making them. This is the first time in his career he's made threes. And he threw down a vicious dunk. And I just did not expect to see this from Jason Smith in any context. He's made twice as many three-pointers since the All-Star break than he made before. Do you think this is just a hot streak? Or do you think at least some of this can be sustainable going into the playoffs? I mean, Smith's always been solid throughout his career. Uh, I think you're touching upon it that his three-point shooting has really improved since the All-Star break and into March. Because before March, actually, and before the All-Star break, his highest three-point shooting night was some random 4-for-7 game. And there were more games where Smith shot no threes than any threes, which I found really interesting. And since March 15th, where he shot 3-of-6 against the Chicago Bulls, He's really started to embrace that shot. And as you were alluding to with Markeith Morris being set up by John Wall, I think Smith has really become the master of the corner jump shot. Just having Wall just to drive, kick, and set up his his teammates from the perimeter is really a key aspect for that. And I don't know if Smith might see minutes as big as he has seen in this recent stretch, but he'll be a decent option for like five to eight minutes, I think, as the playoff rotations get tighter. All right, let's move into talking about the wings for this team. And... The place to start with that is Otto Porter, who's been having a breakout season. He was leading the league in three-point percentage for a lot of the season. He's fallen off a little bit in the last two weeks. He's down to third in the league, but still shooting 44%, which is shocking given that before this year, his best number was 36.7% last season, and his rookie year, he shot 19% from deep. So his performance 
from Beyond the Arc has been really impressive. He's currently ninth in real plus minus among small forwards. He's been above average on defense and basically elite on offense just because he's been so accurate. Basketball Reference has him as the 18th best player in the league in terms of win shares. He's also 20th overall in their value above replacement player measurement. This season has kind of come out of nowhere, and he's really, I think, earned himself pretty close to a max contract this offseason with his play this year, which might complicate things for the Wizards going forward. But what are your thoughts on Porter? I think he's obviously the perfect third option for a team with John Wall and Bradley Beal. He lives in the corner three. And he's been really efficient with that. Like his December, he shot 58%, 49%, and 86% as field goal percentage, three point percentage, and free throw percentage. And even in February, where they played 10 games, he was a 50, 45, 90 player, which is really, really interesting development for him, especially he came into the league as not a guy that was a premier shooter. And he's also added a bit of an in-between game. Like he can pump fake if defenses are really keying in on him. And one move that he really goes to recently is his floater, which is a pretty efficient shot for him. Let's talk about Kelly Oubre, who's been really, really inconsistent this year. He's shooting less than 30% from deep. He's shooting 42% overall. And he ranges from almost elite on defense to completely lost pretty much on a nightly basis. And Ubre is an elite, elite level athlete. He's got one of the best verticals in the league. He's really quick for someone his size. I think he has a lot of potential, but he's just been so inconsistent this year that I honestly don't know what to think of what he could be going forward or even what he could be for the Wizards in the playoffs. Yeah, like you were saying, he's really not a great shooter. But one thing that I've been really impressed with with Ubre is his activity around the rim. Uh, the Wizards really excel at fast break points and transition, obviously because of Wall. And Ubre is just kind of like a snake whenever he gets near the rim. He can find crafty angles around the basket if there's defenders on him he'll find a way to get a nice layup you'll even find some pretty nifty offensive rebounds as well but he's obviously been super inconsistent and i think going forward like, he might just be an energy guy but we'll see he's still really young and it's only a second year i want to talk about boyan bogdanovich who i very much miss having on the nets as i'm sure you do as well since we both cover the nets and we've both seen a lot of boyan right and Something that Bill Simmons said on a recent podcast that I thought was completely accurate was anyone who watched Boyan in Brooklyn knew that he was going to be really successful when he went to the Wizards. And sure enough, he's shooting 39% from deep, which is actually down from his incredibly hot start the first few games in Washington. He's scoring almost 14 points a game for them off the bench in under 24 minutes. And... I thought that was a pretty good trade for Brooklyn to get a first-round pick, but I thought it was an excellent trade for Washington because what has really sunk them all season is just that they haven't had really anyone good off the bench, and they massively upgraded their bench with a guy who can space the floor if he's playing with John Wall and knock down the wide-open shots that Wall will create for him. And when it's just Boyan and other guys on the bench unit, he can score effectively. And we talked about this a little bit with Trey Burke earlier, but this team just is so much worse when the bench comes in than when the starters play. Their starting lineup has one of the best 
plus minuses in the league, and their bench has really struggled all year. And Boyan doesn't completely fix all of those problems, and he's not exactly the greatest defender in the world. But I think he was an incredibly smart pickup for the Wizards at the trade deadline. Yeah, I completely agree. And like you're alluding to in the Bill Simmons podcast, as Nets watchers, we know what Boyan can do. But then he'll have games where Ray only scores six points and three points. Like most recently against their games against the Clippers and the Lakers, he shot one of four for three points. And against the Lakers, he shot three of eight for six points. And that's like typical Boyan. But he's definitely one of the best acquisitions of the trade deadline, along with Lou Williams. And I think the only issue come going forward is his restricted free agency. I, it's obvious that the Wizards really like him and they want to keep him, but with both Otto Porter and Bogdanovich restricted free agents that, this year, it'll be an interesting financial decision for the team going forward, especially if they might have to dip into the luxury tax. Yeah, I think Boyan, Lou Williams, and Yusuf Nurkic need to battle it out for who was the best trade deadline acquisition. But Boyan is one of those guys that could honestly win the Wizards a playoff game. Just one of those nights where one or both of Waller Beal don't have it. Boyan has the capability to get hot enough to actually carry them to a win. And that would be huge for this team who really struggles if Wall and Beal can't just be absolute dynamite. And speaking of Wall and Beal being absolute dynamite, let's move on to the guard rotation. And really, when you talk about the guard rotation, it's John Wall, Bradley Beal, and whoever they can find coming off the bench. So I think at this point, they are the second best backcourt in the league. And that's a bit of a hot take because, you know, the Raptors are still around. But they're both having their first 20-point-per-game season, and they're both above 23 points a game. Beal is shooting 48% from the floor, 40% from deep, and 82% from the free-throw line. He's also third among all shooting guards in the league in real plus-minus. I was honestly slightly offended when Carmelo was picked as the all-star reserve over Bradley Beal, and I don't mean that to hate on Carmelo, who's had a fantastic career, but Beal has had a truly incredible season for a team that's just so much better than the Knicks have been all year long. Yeah, for sure. I think the combo of Wall and Beal, like, they've been touted as one of the best backcourts in the league for years, and they've really started to figure that out. I know that you said that the Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan backcourt might be a little bit better, but I, I think the Wall and Beal combo has a bit more pop to them offensively. Beal is the shooter, Wall is the driver, but Lowry and DeRozan, they might be a little too inefficient offensively, especially from the three-point line to really take that number two spot behind Curry and Thompson. I mean, Lowry is pretty efficient from everywhere, and he's also been better on the defensive end than Wall has this season, but... DeRozan is pretty inefficient, especially when he's not able to get to the free throw line constantly, which is something that he will almost certainly struggle with in the playoffs since most people other than Dwayne Wade in 2006 (laughs) tend to not be as good at getting to the line come playoff time as they are in the regular season. So the other main guard in their rotation at this point is Brandon Jennings, who has taken that backup role from Trey Burke and Thomas Sedaransky, who never really did much with it. Brandon Jennings has made a really strange transformation as a player. He scored 55 points in his seventh game in the NBA, and he was basically a little bit of an inefficient score-first chucker type of point guard. This season for the Wizards, he's shooting 29% from the floor, which is mind-bogglingly atrocious. 
this, but he's averaging 5.1 assists per game in 14 and a half minutes of playing time. And I don't think I've seen a player hunt assists as aggressively as Brandon Jennings has since Rajon Rondo last year in Sacramento, which was its own story. (laughs) But what are your thoughts on Jennings so far for Washington? I think he's definitely an upgrade over Trey Burke. And that's definitely for sure. I don't think anyone can debate that. His shooting might be super inefficient, like you're alluding to with that 29%. But Jennings, he's really exciting player. Just having him off the bench setting people up or breaking people down with his dribbling moves it's definitely an upgrade for the team it'll be a lift for the team too and i don't really think that he needs to score especially with bogdanovich and if they mix in the starters with the bench with Otto porter and then beal i think jennings is an interesting piece going forward and he might deserve a little bit more minutes especially with the minutes load wall and beal have had during the season so it'll be interesting to see if jennings can really like figure out or refine his shooting touch Let's move on to reviewing the season as a whole, as opposed to just the specific rotations. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but they really struggled to start the year. They went 2-8 and eight in their first 10 games, and the biggest part of their struggle was that they just could not score. So their offensive rating in their first 10 games was 100.1, which... If that played out over the full season, they would have the worst offensive rating in the league. The Sixers currently hold that title with a 100.4 offensive rating. So in that early season stretch, and you pointed this out earlier, and I think it's completely correct, they were just struggling to figure out how to adjust to Scott Brooks's offense after running, let's just say, a slightly less complicated system under Randy Whitman. <laughs> Yeah. And I think just their overall bad start, even their wins weren't great. They didn't have great opponents to win against. Their first couple of wins were against the Hawks and Celtics, which were pretty good wins. But for the rest of that, it was against the the Knicks, the Magic, the Kings, and Hornets and the Pistons. And those aren't great teams. And I think they really hit their stride as the New Year's has come around. Uh, you mentioned that they've gone 44 and 20 since that rough start, and I think they're only building upon that, even though they've kind of dipped a little in March. So on that 44 and 20 tear since that rough start, their offense has gone up massively. So their offensive rating since November 16th, when they dropped to 2 and 8, has been 109.8, which would be fifth in the league at the moment. And as I talked about briefly on the last podcast on the Rockets, being that high in offensive rating this season is a bit misleading because this season, the Warriors and the Houston Rockets both have the best offensive ratings the league has seen since the 2009-2010 Suns. So they've been spectacular on offense since that tough start. They've actually been slightly worse on defense, but I think part of that might also be due to just the fact that they were struggling so much to score that, you know, they were a lot more easily able to get back in transition on defense because, you know, they weren't going to put the ball in the basket themselves. Yeah. And just looking at their offensive rating, they jumped from 30th and now they rank 8th in offensive rating. So within that 44 and 20 stretch, it's really been a revelation for them. They saw all of their guys just really make a jump. And I think going forward that if they can sustain that level of play on offense, they could potentially be an Eastern Conference Finals contender. But that's we'll talk about it later, I guess. Actually, let's talk about that now. Great. The Wizards are the third seed in the East at the moment. 
And I think this roster is really built for the playoffs rather than the regular season. And that's because their starting lineup has just been so good. And their biggest weakness has been their bench, which their bench is just going to see less time when the playoffs come around. That's just how playoff rotation works. So their starting lineup is currently the most played lineup in the NBA by a pretty significant margin. They've played almost 1,300 minutes together. The next closest lineup has played 880. And their starting lineup has a net rating of 8.5, which is closer to Spurs Warriors territory than their overall net rating of 3.1. So when the playoffs come around and rotations are trimmed from 10 or 11 to 8 or 9, I think the Wizards are going to benefit almost... Close to as much as any other team in the league, just because their starting lineup has been so fantastic when they've been able to play together. Yeah, and even just looking at the playoff matchups, uh, so currently the Wizards hold the third seed in the Eastern Conference, and they'd be matched up with either the Bucks or the Hawks. I think both Wall, Beal, and Porter, that's a three-man combo better than any of the Bucks or Hawks' best lineups. And even if the Wizards advance, they they might have that dreaded rematch against the Boston Celtics. Uh, earlier in the season, they kind of started a pseudo-rivalry with the, the funeral game. I think the Celtics are a great regular season team, but like you were saying, when rotations get shorter and there's eight or nine players rather than 10 or 11, I don't think the Celtics could match up to the, to the Wizards. Just having... Beal, Wall, Porter, even Gortat and Morris and Bogdanovich on the bench is a lot better than having two main key focuses like for the Celtics like they have with Isaiah Thompson and Al Horford. So you teased this a little bit earlier when you said that you thought this team was an Eastern Conference Finals contender, and I completely agree with that. And my question about this team is, are they the biggest threat to Cleveland in the East? And I think that Cleveland matches up very well with the Celtics because Kyrie and Isaiah Thomas are basically just going to be a wash of score first, defend never point guards. And LeBron is just going to tear through Jay Crowder and Jalen Brown. The Raptors, I think, have a decent chance against Cleveland almost entirely because of the addition of P.J. Tucker. And having Serge Ibaka as a more defensive-minded center will also help them. But I think if anyone in the East is going to take down the Cavs this year, it's going to be the Wizards. Wall and Beal have a pretty sizable advantage, in my mind, over Kyrie and JR. I think Wall-Kyrie is a little bit more of a debate than Beal versus JR, but I still think Wall is better than Kyrie, and Beal is clearly better than JR. And in terms of LeBron, they can throw a bunch of different types of defenders at him. They can throw Oubre on him, who's a little bit smaller, but an elite-level athlete. They can throw Porter on him, who's pretty similar size-wise to LeBron and can cover him decently well. If LeBron starts destroying him in the post, they can put Markeith Morris on LeBron. And the Wizards' biggest weak point, I think, is their ability to defend. But Cleveland has been awful on defense, especially recently. So I don't think that's going to matter as much. And the game that we will talk about later between the Wizards and the Cavs, I think showed that if anyone's going to take down LeBron this year, I think the Wizards 
have a better shot than anyone. Well, before the finals, that is. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think another caveat that the Wizards might have against the Cavaliers is their rebounding. Uh, we saw that the Cavaliers are a great rebounding team when they want to be, uh, especially with Tristan Thompson and with Kevin Love back now. I don't think Marcin Gortat and Markeith Morris can out-rebound those guys, and that could be a problem, especially with defenses getting a lot tighter and the rebounding battle becoming a lot more important in the playoff series, especially if it goes to a seven-game Eastern Conference final series. All right, let's move on to the most recent Wizards article on hashtag basketball, written by Charles. And I'm going to just let you talk about this, but I don't think we've talked about John Wall enough on this podcast. He's been fantastic this year, and I just want you to give me your thoughts on what Wall has been like this season for the Wizards. I think Wall has been the third best point guard in the NBA and probably a top 10, maybe a top 8 player in the entire NBA. And a lot of that isn't getting that much attention, which I find really interesting. On the season, he's averaging around 24 points and 11 assists. And the way he's doing things and he's getting things done, it's a lot more efficient. Uh, He's not throwing as many passes as he was last season, but he's getting more assists. He's not taking as many drives, but he's shooting more free throws and he's scoring more points, which I found really interesting. It kind of shows that with Scott Brooks as coach, Wall is a bit more decisive. Uh, But the only caveat with Wall's progression and ascension to being a really great player offensively is his regression defensively. His defensive rating this year is 108, and prior to that, he was an all-NBA defender. He he had a defensive rating of 102, 101, and 104 in previous years. But this season, we really haven't seen that. It might be because of the huge load he has to handle offensively, but he has the skills and he has the track record of being a great defender, but we haven't really been able to see it. And I think just in a more general sense, he could be getting MVP votes, but we'll see. I want to save the MVP talk for just a little bit later because I do want to talk about that. But really quickly, Wall's shooting a career best 54.4% true shooting, and he's also averaging a career high in points. He hadn't cracked 20 points before this year. Now he's at 23.4. And granted, it's a bit more than a bit disingenuous to say he hadn't cracked 20 points before this year since he averaged 19.9 points per game last season. But he's second in the league in assists. And he's really been a lot more of a prototypical point guard, I think, than some of the other players that are in the discussion for best point guard in the league, other than, obviously, Chris Paul. But let's just talk about the point guard rankings really quickly before we move into that MVP talk. So you said that you think he's been the third best point guard in the league this year, and I don't really disagree with that. I think that might also depend on whether you think Harden is a point guard or not. I'm just considering him a point guard at this point because at the end of the day, that's what Mike D'Antoni calls him. That's what the Rockets call him. That's how they think of him. But I would put Wall as the fifth best point guard in the league. I'd put him behind Harden. I'd put him behind Westbrook. I'd put him behind Steph Curry. And I still think Chris Paul is better than Wall. And a large part of that is just because Paul has been incredible on defense once again this year, and although Wall has the capability to be good on the defensive end, he really hasn't been this season. And granted, the three guys ahead of him on the list that aren't Chris Paul aren't exactly world-beating defenders, but I think the question with Wall is, do you think he's better than Kyle Lowry, assuming they're both fully healthy? Because that debate, I think, is a really interesting one. 
Yeah, I think it might much might just be recency bias for me because Lowry's been out for a couple of weeks, but Wall's been really impressive. I think Lowry might affect the game more in different ways, especially with the way he defends and the way he sets up his his teammates and the way he shoots. But Wall has just been, I guess, a more important player for the Wizards. His on-court, off-court splits definitely show that. And without Lowry, the Raptors have been pretty decent. And that might be due to P.J. Tucker, but it just shows that the Raptors are built around not just Lowry, but the rest of the team as well. But without Wall, the Wizards would probably be maybe like the second or third worst team in the league. Yeah, I think without Wall, even with the season that Beal's been having, they are probably in the bottom five in the league. I also don't think it would be possible for Beal to have the season he's having without Wall being so spectacular. And I'm going to make myself look like a complete moron here, because after saying that I'm not sure whether Wall is the fifth or sixth best point guard in the league, I still would have him fifth in the MVP voting. And granted, the fifth place in this year's MVP voting is just going to be so far behind the top four that have really distanced themselves in Kawhi, LeBron, Westbrook, and Harden. But I think Wall has just been more impressive than Isaiah Thomas this season, who I think is the other candidate that people think about for fifth place in the MVP voting. And I love Isaiah Thomas. I've loved Isaiah Thomas since the moment the Sacramento Kings signed him. I was devastated when they let him go for basically nothing. But he cannot be a good defender. He is physically incapable of being a good defender. And even though Wall has slipped on defense this season, which has been troubling, he's still nowhere near as much of a negative as Isaiah Thomas is. And at the end of the day, Wall and Thomas create about the same number of points per game for their teammates. Thomas just does it by scoring about six points more per game, but giving out about four fewer assists. Wall might actually create more points than Thomas does, just because Wall is so good at passing into three-point shots for his teammates. But I think at the end of the day, it's close enough on offense, because Thomas is also a really efficient scorer, that the gap between their defenses, I think, overcomes that slight difference in offense for Thomas. And honestly, I would be perfectly fine with someone arguing that Wall is a better offensive player as well. Yeah. I think, again, like with the comparison I made to Kyle Lowry, the Celtics have been pretty okay in games without Isaiah Thomas. Like the Wizards, again, wouldn't be a great team without John Wall. And again, it's the most valuable player award. Uh, Aside from Harden, Westbrook, Kawhi Leonard, and LeBron James, I think Wall has been the most important player for his team all season. And especially with his just having him as a the key point for the offense and his impact on the rest of the player's success. Bradley Beal's having a career year, like you were saying. Otto Porter's having a career year. Boyan Bogdanovich has like had a renaissance in Washington after having a decent year in Brooklyn. And I think just having Wall on the team is so much better for the Wizards. Like if you switch the two, I think the the Celtics would have a better record with Wall, with Wall on the team than Isaiah Thomas. I completely agree with that. So let's move on to the best and worst games for the Wizards this season. And I want to start with their recent win over Cleveland. So they beat the Cavs 127 to 115. They did it in Cleveland. And we talked earlier about how we both thought the Wizards are the team with the best chance in the East of knocking off the Cavs. And I think this game showed the blueprint for that just very clearly. Wall dominated Kyrie Irving on both ends of the floor. Wall put up 37 and 11 on 21 shots. 
and Kyrie put up 23 points and four assists on 23 shots. So, you know, Walt outscored him and took fewer shots. It was just a masterful performance by him. And then LeBron had a pretty solid game. He was a couple of rebounds short of a triple-double, as he pretty much always is. But Kelly Oubre and Otto Porter played decently well, and LeBron didn't completely destroy them on the defensive end. And at the end of the day, the Wizards just outscored the Cavs. I mean, that seems you know very obvious given that they won the game, but the Wizards had a 68% true shooting. The Cavs had 60.6% true shooting. Basically, neither team played any defense, but the Wizards were able to score a little bit better than the Cavs. And if any team is going to beat Cleveland in the playoffs, it's going to be by taking advantage of the fact that their defense has just fallen off a cliff, especially since the All-Star break. And I think the Wizards are primed to do that better than pretty much anyone. Yeah, a lot of people have been framing that game as being a warning alarm game for the, the Cavaliers, but people should look at that as a sign for the Wizards to be a contender. Uh, they scored 71 points in the first half against the Cavaliers, and the Cavaliers were mostly at full strength. Kevin, They played with their intended playoff lineup with Kevin Love, J.R. Smith, Tristan Thompson, LeBron James, and Kyrie Irving, but Love and Smith back. And Love played 32 minutes and nobody on the team really was able to make a dent. I don't believe the Cavaliers even led in the game. But just The Wizards were just too much offensively, and Cleveland couldn't match up with them. So the Cavs are currently in free fall. They've lost their last three games, and they're currently only a game and a half ahead of the Wizards for second place in the East. And the Cavs have a pretty tough schedule to close out the year. It's possible, I think. I don't think it's likely, but I think it's possible that the Wiz could take over the second seed from the Cavs. And the Wiz haven't really been brilliant lately either. They're 5-5 five and five in their last 10 games. But if Cleveland continues to struggle like this and the Wizards could climb into the two seed, I think that would really shake off shake up the playoff picture. But we'll talk more about that when we get into the worst games. So for now, let's move on to the other game that we wanted to talk about in the best games section. They beat the Golden State Warriors on February 28th. And I think the thing that was most important for the Wizards in this game is that John Wall had a really rough performance in terms of shooting. He scored 12 points on 6 for 20 shooting, but the Wizards won anyway. And a large part of that is Wall wasn't able to score effectively, so instead he decided to become purely a passing player, and he got 19 assists in this game. Bradley Beal and Markeith Morris also had pretty strong performances, although Draymond Green completely dominated Morris. But Clay Thompson shot 5 for 20 in this game, and Brad Beal was just better than him on both ends of the floor. And it's a major accomplishment anytime you can beat the Warriors, but it's particularly encouraging when you're able to beat the Warriors despite a bad shooting game from John Wall. Yeah, and one thing that we haven't, we didn't mention with that Warriors Wizards game is that that was the game that Kevin Durant initially got injured. He only played a minute 33 in that game. He shot 0 of 1. And then the rest of the game, like, they had to really extend their, their rotation by playing Patrick McCaw extended minutes, James Michael McAdoo extended minutes. They even played Ian Clark for two minutes as well. Like you were saying, just having Wall be Steve Nash reincarnated in that game, despite the poor shooting performance, really buoyed the Wizards to a win. 
yeah, it is important to talk about Kevin Durant leaving this game very early on. And in part, that's because Boyan Bogdanovich and Otto Porter both had really great games. And that's almost certainly not something that they're going to be able to do, at least to that extent, with Kevin Durant in the lineup. Porter got 14 points on eight shots and also grabbed eight rebounds. Boyan was three of six from behind the arc, ended up with 16 points in 23 and a half minutes. So those performances are not necessarily replicable against a Warriors team with Durant back, which that would be only a finals matchup. Almost certainly have to get through Cleveland to get to that point anyway. But you can say that they wouldn't have lost this game by four if Kevin Durant had played the whole game. But it's also encouraging that you know, Wall was effectively missing in the scoring department, and they still managed to beat the best team in the league. Let's move on to some of the poorer performances from the Wiz this season. And I wanted to start with their blowout loss to the Bucks on December 23rd. They lost 123-96, to and even that doesn't really tell the full story of how much of a struggle this game was for the Wizards because they scored 38 points in the second half, and they actually scored 58 points in the first half, which sounds impressive until you realize that the Bucks put up 73 in the first half, and Giannis just eviscerated them in this game. He scored 39 points on 19 shots, which is absurd. He was 15 of 17 from the line. This was his career high until he had a 40-point game later in the season, but 39 points, 6 assists, 8 rebounds, and he just controlled both ends of the floor for the Bucks, and they won this one going away. Yeah, and one thing to really take note of that game is that the Wizards were getting pounded inside. Adetokounmpo obviously is an inside dominant player, so a lot of his points came off of dunks, alley-oops, and just fast breaks. The same for Jabari Parker with his 21 points. I think overall, like looking at it from a season-wide perspective, that this game was probably a game that started the turnaround for the Wizards. They were 13-16 and 16 at the end of the game, record-wise, but after that, they started going on frequent win streaks. They would string together two to three win streaks, and then they had a seven-game win streak in the middle of January into February. And games like those where you're beat by a lot, that's a game where you have to respond. And it looks like the Wizards really clicked right after that game. Brad Beal also had a bit of a rough showing, which didn't exactly help things. He had 10 points on 10 shots. And if the Wizards are going to win games against playoff teams in the East, you know, they're going to need more than 28 points from Wall and Beal. Let's move on to the next game in the worst games section. They lost to the Timberwolves 119 to 104 on March 13th, and both Wall and Beal actually cracked 20 points, but Beal took 21 shots to get there. Wall was 6 of 16 from the floor, but was 14 of 19 from the line. He also only had 5 assists, turned the ball over 4 times, nearly fouled out. Jan Mahimi actually did foul out, and Jan Mahimi fouling out was because Carl Anthony Towns just destroyed them. He had 39 points, he had 13 rebounds, he shot 17 of 26 overall, and going back to the playoff picture discussion from earlier, if the Wizards climb into the two seed, or if they say as the three seed, 
I think this game shows exactly why they just do not want the Miami Heat in the first round of the playoffs. They're 0-2 against Miami so far this year, and Hassan Whiteside is obviously not the same caliber of player as Carl Anthony Towns, but if the Wizards are going to bow out in the first round of the playoffs, I think it's almost certainly going to be because some big guy just takes Marjean Gortat to task at the rim, and if Jan Mahimi isn't up to the task of defending whatever dominant big man they might come up against in the first round, that's going to be a big struggle for them, especially if they end up being stuck with Miami in either a 2-7 or a 3-6 matchup. Yeah, I think the Eastern Conference is kind of a guard-heavy conference, especially at the top of things. So like you were saying, the, the Wizards and the Heat matchup is probably not the best matchup for them. So they might want to step back because I think the Heat are kind of... are in the battle for the six, seven, and eight seeds. So if the Wizards end up with the third seed, playing the Heat at the sixth seed might not be be the greatest. But going back to that game against the Timberwolves, that game was as bad a defensive performance as the Wizards as you'll see, but it was also a really good game for the Timberwolves. Uh, they started off really hot. Uh, they were making a lot of really difficult shots. Even Brandon Rush got into things early. Ricky Rubio shot really efficiently with 8 of 15. Carl Anthony Towns, like you're saying, scored 39 points. And in the first quarter, the Wizards were outscored by the Timberwolves 23 to 41. And the Timberwolves led by as many as 21 points in that first quarter. So it was a really rough showing for the, for the Wizards. And they might not see that many games into the playoffs, but it's something to look out for, especially with their big man rotation and even uh, their guard rotation with Wall not being as great of a defender of the season compared to previous years. So three of the four leading scorers for the Wizards this season shot under 40% for the field in this game. John Wall, 37.5%. Bradley Beal, 33.3%. Boyan Bogdanovich, 27.3%. And at the end of the day, the Wizards are going to win games on the offensive end. They're just not that great of a defensive team. And if they just get poor performances from their top guys, you know, Carl Anthony Towns dominating them doesn't help things, but the Wizards are going to lose games anyway if their top guys just aren't scoring. And that's a bit unfair to Wall because he did manage to just put his head down and get to the line enough to end up with 27 points, but Beal and Bogdanovich really kind of shot them out of this game. Yeah, Bogdanovich shot 3 for 11, and if Wall and Beal aren't really cooking on offense, Bogdanovich is probably their third best option for scoring. Porter might be too he might be too much of a scorer that relies on his teammates and if wall can't nail his shot and defenses sag off of him and he hasn't been shooting great from the three-point line this year teams might look to exploit that going forward especially in the playoffs speaking of the playoffs and we talked about this a little bit earlier with the potential issues they might have with facing miami let's just take a quick look at the potential playoff picture for the wizards so at the moment they would actually play the bucks in the three six matchup but the hawks have been free falling they won their last two games which were the first two games that they have won all season without paul Millsap on the floor they lost 
I think it was eight straight prior to that. And the Hawks have sort of been entrenched at the five seed almost the entire season. But right now they have an identical winning percentage to the Bucks, and they're only ahead based on the conference record tiebreaker. But the Hawks have a negative point differential this season. The only other team in the playoff picture right now with a negative point differential is the Indiana Pacers, and they're tied for eighth. So... If the Wizards get lucky, the Hawks could fall to six or seven, and the Wizards at two or three could end up with them. I think that's a great matchup for the Wizards, because there's nothing that Dennis Schroeder can do against John Wall. And the Wizards have beaten the Hawks three of the four times they've played them this season, and I just think that's a much better matchup for Washington than either Milwaukee or Miami. Yeah, like you were mentioning with the Timberwolves game discussion, Miami is definitely, I don't think any team in the top three would want to play Miami, especially with the way they've been playing. But I think that Atlanta matchup is probably the best for Washington. Indiana could make a surge, but they're still kind of finding their way, especially with Paul George letting his frustrations out recently. So it'll be interesting to see who the the Wizards match up with. And that could be a really interesting point just to see which team will get upset in the first round. And looking at the standings now, Toronto is actually a game behind the Wizards in the standings. So we could even see the Wizards drop to fourth or even go to second like if Cleveland continues to freefall. Talking about the Pacers, I think they would also be a worse matchup for the Wizards than the Hawks would, just because playoff Paul George is really a force, and Otto Porter versus Paul George is a clear victory for the Pacers, and Miles Turner versus Marcin Gortat and Jan Mahimi is also a clear victory for the Pacers. But Indiana is 26-12 and 12 at home this year, and 11-26 and 26 on the road, and the Wizards are 29-10 and 10 at home this season. So if they end up playing the Wizards, the Wizards are going to have home court advantage, and even if Paul George just goes completely insane in the playoffs, that is a huge gap between home record for the Wizards and road record for the Pacers. And I just don't think the Pacers would win a game in Washington if that series came to be. Yeah, especially with Jeff Teague. Jeff Teague is definitely not George Hill for the Pacers. I think Teague might potentially get destroyed on offense against John Wall. I don't think that's a potentially. I think John Wall would just run roughshod over Jeff Teague. And honestly, I think John Wall would run roughshod over any of these point guards with the possible exception of Goran Dragic. Although, I guess if Giannis is kind of a point guard, Wall's not going to run over Giannis. I don't think anyone's going to run over Giannis. Right. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up here? No, I think I'm good. Thank you so much for listening. He is Charles Maniego. You can find his work on the hashtag basketball website. You can find him on Twitter at Ignition, I-G-N-I-S-Y-O-N. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A Johnson. You can also follow the hashtag basketball website on Twitter at hash basketball. As the fantasy season winds down, you can still find great tips there about how to set your lineups for the last matchup of the year. If you've been enjoying the pod, please leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. Please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or via email at nickaj.nba at gmail.com, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And thanks so much for listening.